Lord, in prayer before we get started today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance that we have to gather here in your name and hear your word preached. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to know exactly what you would have me to say. And uh, may everyone here be filled with your Holy Spirit and controlled by your Holy Spirit to hear what you want them to hear. And Father, I pray that they would hear you, not me. And I pray that you would bless us now today. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Uh, this weekend is July 4th weekend. And I'm reminded of how incredibly thankful I am for the graciousness that God has allowed our country through her 247-year history so far to have the freedoms that we have. But as we begin to study the book of Amos, it's fitting that we start this on the July 4th weekend. <clears throat> we'll see that we are following the same footsteps that Israel followed in Amos's day. If you were to ask a large cross-section of American citizens what their view of God is, specifically what they think that we as a nation need to hear about God, the most given answer would probably be that he is love. And that's true. And it's vital for everyone to know that and, know, and to hear that, that God is love. And if it, God is not love, then we have no hope. Amen. We have no future home. We have no message to give. But God is not just love. See, he's the perfect balance of all of his attributes. He is mercy. He is justice. He is goodness. He is holiness. He is his eternality is important. His righteousness is important. His immutability or the fact that he never changes is important. See, when we focus heavily on one aspect or attribute of God, we become unbalanced in our view of God. We become unbalanced in our focus in this life. God is love, and I'm so grateful for that, amen? But he is also just, and he is also powerful. And he has a plan and a purpose for mankind. And that plan and that purpose is going to be fulfilled. With us or in spite of us. It is God that Amos presents, it is this God that Amos presents from the beginning of his prophecy. I'd like to start off introducing the book of Amos by seeing the overview of the whole book. And I think it helps us get a better picture of what, they, what we have here by seeing the overview of the whole thing. And I think the best way to, show, uh, to do that is to show you a video made by BibleProject.com. And they do a fantastic job of giving an overview of all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, and they, they have available on their website for free. Um, they can be very useful. But like anything else, I, I can't say that I agree 100% with everything that's said. Uh, you know, it's just kind of the way it is with human nature, you know. Uh, we're all wrong in some areas, and if I figured out where I was wrong, then I would be right. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just so, you don't always agree with everything. But overall, it's very, very well done and accurate and th nothing in theologically in danger or anything like that. I wouldn't show you something that it was uh, would start, cause you to go astray theologically. Uh, but I want to watch this with an open heart and keeping an eye on all Scripture so that we can balance out what's going on in God's big picture. And so let's watch this overview of Amos here, and we'll start that right now. The book of the prophet Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. 
Now, the North had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12? And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos could couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom, and it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos's message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery, and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility. And so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now, this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos's call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. So righteousness, or in Hebrew, tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew, mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. 
The next theme is Amos's repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed a golden calf in each. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshiping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves. Not the God of Israel, he's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live. And then right after that, say to Israel, seek good, not evil that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced and their symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm and then by a scorching fire and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come. But then, all of a sudden, in the final paragraph, we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building, and God says that out of the ruins, he will one day restore the house of David. In other words, he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line, and he will rebuild the family of God's people, which, surprisingly, we're told, is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now, this final paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos' words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about. Hopefully that helps you get an overview of what Amos is about. You don't worry, you don't have to remember all of that, okay? Uh, we're not, there's not going to be a test. Uh, we're not going to do that. But now I, we get an idea of ge the general idea of what the whole book is about. Now I want to go into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 and introduce the book and go forward from there. And so we've introduced, uh, we are introduced to Amos in verse number one. He says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Excuse me, in the, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years after the earthquake. 
This gives us a little bit of a background about Amos, but really very little is said about who Amos is in Scripture. In fact, the only thing that we're told about this man is here in chapter 1, verse 1, and a little bit in chapter 7. Um, as we saw in the video, Amos was described as a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit in chapter 7. Uh, the point being that he was not a professional prophet. Uh, he did not go to the school of the prophets uh, during Elisha, Elisha's day. Uh, he was just a man from Judah the, uh, who God called to go to the other side of the divided kingdom, Israel, and proclaim God's revelation to the people and to the king there. Now, think about that for just a minute. He's not even of their own people. I think of whenever uh, I was back in Texas growing up, and uh, there was a war between Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, not really a war, but we just didn't like each other. You can think of uh, Michigan and Ohio, okay? Um, and, you know, if somebody, think of uh, somebody came from Ohio and came to pastor your church. Uh, you wouldn't like that. You'll, you'll accept a Californian, uh, you know, or originally a Texan, but an Ohioan, never. You know, and, uh, you know, forget the Buckeyes, right? And, uh, but uh, nevertheless, you know, it's, uh, that's kind of what we're seeing here. In fact, they had warred at times. And uh, here this prophet is coming from Judah to the nation of Israel and telling them, hey, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, this is not an easy thing for Amos to do. Amos prophesied during the time of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So in Judah, uh, Uzziah is the king, and he reigned for 55 years. He was a good king uh, who sought the Lord. And because of this, Judah was very prosperous during this time. It was a time of new inventions, in fact, the Bible tells us, that helped defend the nation against attackers. The Bible describes it as machines of war uh, that shot arrows at their enemies. Uh, boy, that, I got some questions. Amen. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that kind of thing come during times of prosperity, during times of obedience. In Israel, King Jeroboam reigned for 40 and one years. And Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord and continued the sins of his father. And during this time, there was prosperity in Israel nevertheless. And uh, this led to a new upper class, as we saw in the video, mistreating the lower class of their society. And for this reason, God sent Amos from Judah to Israel to give these prophecies and these visions that they would be judged for their wickedness. And just because they were God's people, it did not exempt them from judgment coming to them. And by the way, can I say that very clearly to us today? Amen? Just because we are God's people as God's chosen individuals... It doesn't mean that we are exempt from judgment coming to our lives if we do not listen to him and yield to sin, uh, if we yield to sin rather than the Holy Spirit. And just because they were God's chosen people, it didn't mean they were safe. In these two chapters, uh, two verses, I want to point out three crucial themes that we'll uh, see appear throughout the book of Amos. Uh, Amos starts off his prophecy in verse number two and says, The Lord will roar from Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. And we see first, the, uh, 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 first of all, the incredibly essential truth is that, number one, God speaks. God speaks. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And there's no more basic truth about God in the Bible than the fact that God speaks. Uh, here, the speaking of God is pictured as a roar of a lion. Now, understand that the roar of a lion is not made when the lions are content and napping. 
And you understand what I'm saying? The roar of a lion comes when he's about to pounce on his prey or one of the other lions is going to pounce on the prey. And God is fed up here. That's what the picture is. Uh, judgment is coming. Uh, he's spoken through his prophets through the years and in, through his law. And now he speaks as a lion roars. In contrast to the idols that people turned to during this time who could not speak and who could not act for or against them. God will speak and he will act. And throughout the book of Amos, we see three ways in which God speaks. First of all, we see letter A, that he speaks through his messengers. Verse 1 says, the words of Amos. And this shows that this is not some supernatural disembodied communication to his people. But God wanted his people to hear him, and so he sent a real man to speak a real message. And he still chooses to speak through his messengers today. We hold in our hands the Bible given to us by God through the use of faithful men. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't just men writing it. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We were given the word of God in our hands and the revelation of God because God spoke to these men and these men spoke to us through writing, or through verbal means. And yet many have rejected this word from God and have rejected his men. God even spoke powerfully and perfectly through his son as he came to earth. John 1.14 tells us, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And even though he was a God on earth, perfect revelation of who God was, and speaking what God wanted us to hear, they still did not hear. Verse 11 of that same chapter says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Today, God still speaks through his messengers. Pastors and preachers speak forth the word of God, his revelation to mankind, and speak forth what God wants them to know. 1 Corinthians 1.21 tells us, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, I'm not sure how much I like the idea that God talks about my profession as the foolishness of preaching. But the truth is, mankind around us see what I do as foolishness. And that's what he's saying here. You might think sometimes, like I do at times, you know, if I were God, I think I would make a sign in the sky that could not be ignored. Or I would send angels to appear in their winged glory that could not be disregarded. I would make it so apparent. But I'm not God, and aren't you glad? Amen? But God said he doesn't work that the way that man works. His ways are not our ways. Uh, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Oh, we might ought to listen to the preachers of God's word. Amen? And secondly, God speaks in the book of Amos, number two, or letter B, through visions and oracles. And verse one says, the words of Amos, and then later in that same verse, he continues the thought, and he says, which he saw. Uh, God chose to use a vision to give Amos what he had to tell the nation of Israel. 
The prophet sees a vision of God and the world around him, the way that God wants him to see it. And he has the job to translate that into words, words that have transformative power to its hearers. And we'll see some more of this as we dive further into this book. An oracle, as he says here, talks about here, is an oracle is simply a person who provides wise or prophetic counsel from God. Hears something and speaks what God, God tells him. I do believe that now that we have the complete word of God in our hands, God typically does not use visions and oracles as his main source of communication. Uh, it is, it's not needed. Now that we have the complete revelation of God in our hands and everything that he wants to reveal to us. And thirdly, he speaks not only through his messengers, not only through visions and oracles here in the book of Amos, but number three, directly through his creation. We see how God speaks through his creation in verse 1. And when the timeline is given as two years before the earthquake. And this was a very significant earthquake in the history of Israel and Judah. That's mentioned in other books as well. It seems to connect the fact that this is a judgment sent to Israel by God because of their sin. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. But the second crucial theme that I want to see today is not only does God speak, but the second thing that we see in the book of Amos is that God is the Lord of history. God is in control of history. There's no doubt that we can see the thread of God's hand working throughout all of history. Even atheists seem to think that something is at work. They won't attribute it to God, but something seems to be a theme running throughout all of history. And God will always accomplish his plans because he is the Lord of history. For the most part, he allows the natural law of nature to take its course. He allows the natural consequences of sin and of a sinful world to fulfill its end. But from time to time, he maneuvers the plot of humankind in order to fulfill his predetermined plan. And ultimately, he is in control. He gives man free will to decide if they will follow him or not. But he intervenes enough to not let his plans go off the rails. And we'll see this as we study the book of Amos. And we see, first of all, that God intervenes in history, letter A, in in particular. He intervenes by particular interventions at particular times because of particular circumstances. Amos fixes the time of his message as two years before the earthquake. And this was part of the judgment that Amos announces. He involves himself in history in particular during the reign of these two kings while they enjoyed their prosperity. But their prosperity led them to what brought the judgment in the first place. A threat was looming on the horizon that they really did not know anything about. And the prophets of this day, Hosea and Amos, warned them about these threats. Assyria was beginning to flex its muscles. And they were becoming a a threatening presence in the background. And they needed to see that God would use this foreign power to get Israel's attention. And God used Amos and Hosea both to warn Israel about this coming threat. They had mistreated their own people. And God was now roaring to get their attention, ready to pounce and bring judgment. 
The complacent rich were oppressing the poor, and God was through with it. He was at his limit. And secondly, we see that God intervenes in history not only in particular, but also in general. This is a part of the grand picture, the grand plan of all of history. It's all leading to God's ultimate goal. All of history is. Amos mentions God roaring from Zion and his voice being uttered from Jerusalem. This draws the reader's mind to the grand picture of God's plan for this world in general. God is at work in the ongoing revelation of history to see the ultimate picture of Zion and their ultimate king ruling and reigning from there. And God is working in history all throughout history to that end. And one day it's going to be coming. And what side of history are you going to be on is the question. And the question that they brought, uh, that Amos and Hosea brought Israel to try to answer. So we see that God speaks. That's the first theme that goes throughout the book of Amos. Secondly, we see that God is the Lord of history and he is in control. That's the second theme that we see in the book, throughout the book of Amos. The number three, we see the theme that God is the Lord of creation. God is the Lord of creation. God is not just the Lord of history and his grand sweep throughout the timeline, but the Lord of Amos, the Lord that Amos portrays, is also the Lord of creation as well. Going back to the earthquake for a moment, because that's what's mentioned in these verses. I'm using these verses, so we're going to go back to what is presented in these verses. We see that God uses his creation to bring judgment to his people. Disasters and earthquakes for all of history that we have recorded have been used by God to grab the attention of people. Some of the great awakenings have come after God grabbed their att the attention of his people after periods of very serious uh, sin and very dark days. And God brings revival during times whenever God uses something to get their attention. But we also need to be careful not to believe that every disaster is a direct punishment from God. God is a God of balance, and we need to understand that as well. In fact, look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. He says, There were present at, the, at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall also likewise perish. In verse 4 he says, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus draws the attention of the people to these two disasters that happened. One, a disaster by a ruler. And a, a great injustice that was done. And the second, a natural disaster, the a, a tower falling and killing people, 18 people. And it was news had spread across the land of this disaster. Today we would talk about possibly, uh, you know, the 9-11. The you know, we all know where we were the day 9-11 happened. People that are of the previous generation know where they were when Kennedy was shot. Uh, you know, and just people talk about where I was, you know, sitting in my living room when I heard that the towers fell. I was here, I was on my way to work, or I was doing whatever the case may be. 
People know where they were when those big disasters happened because it grabbed their attention and everything stood still and they knew exactly what they were doing at that time. This is similar to what we're talking about here. When he mentions this tower that fell, everyone knew what he was talking about because it was a disaster of great proportions for that day. And it's something that touched every person that heard about it, about this disaster that happened. And Jesus told these people here that, they, that those who went through these traumatic events were no more sinners than we are, than they were, that hear the words of Jesus. We just need to focus on our own repentance, he said. Don't blame their sin for every disaster. But God does bring disasters to get a hold of the attention of people from time to time. The point is, God is control over all of his creation. The whole land, uh, 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 I mean, God is trying to get a hold of of their attention to bring them to repentance. God doesn't want us to look at a disaster and say, they must have really been sinners. He wants us to look at a disaster and say, am I doing right? What is in my, is there something in my life that I need to correct? Whether I was affected by this or not, it's an opportunity that God wants to use to get a hold of our attention and get us to cause us to go to right. The whole land is implied here in verse number two. He talks about the habitations of the shepherds, the valleys and pastures where they would feed, and then the top of Carmel. In Hebrew language, especially in poetry, these opposites stated together implied the whole. Uh, Like saying heaven and earth. Uh, It's talking about everything in between. And it says good and evil. Speaking of this kind of reference, it speaks of everything. uh, From head to foot, you know, and talking about two extremes, we're talking about the whole of the body. Everything in between is the two is implied. And so here he's talking about the uh, habitations of the shepherds in the valley all the way to the top of Carmel. He goes, everything of the whole land is what he's trying to display here. The theme here is judgment. God will use nature, his creation, to bring the judgment. The habitations of of the shepherds will mourn. And the top of Carmel will wither. As we preach through this book, we'll find these three themes as we go through. The God who speaks, the Lord of history, and the Lord of creation at the heart of everything that we go through. We'll see that this book is not just a book about Amos. Very little is known about him in truth. We'll see that this book is not a book about Israel. That's not the focus of this book. This book is about God. He's the focus of this book. How he relates to this world. We're going to see how the God of heaven judges man. What is true for God's chosen people back then is true about God's chosen people today. The Christians who have been chosen before the foundations of the world are those that are his people. We too must be concerned about the social concerns of the world around us. We seem to have two extremes in America today. So much concern about social justice that our rights and our righteousness get set to the side. And then there's the other side, the flip side, where our rights and our righteousness get so much focus 
that the righteousness of social justice gets set aside. And God is a God of balance. God wants both. He wants you to do the right thing. He wants you to have freedom. God is a God of freedom. Amen. He wants you to have your freedom. But he does not want you to cast aside those who are hurting. Let's make what is important to God important to us. Amen. Let's not get sidetracked by any political agenda. But let's care about righteousness. Including the care of our neighbors as well. We need to be stirred out of complacency and get busy for the Lord. Always looking how we can help our fellow man. What are the two commandments? The greatest of the commandments. In fact, the whole law hinges on those. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy might. And the second is like, like unto this, thou shalt love thy neighbor. God's concerned about both. And we need to be too. These words that we'll study, and not, are the, they are not Amos' words. They are the revelation of God put forth by the man of God. And as such, has authority. Never forget that God is in control. He speaks. Are you listening to him? Are you putting yourself consistently in a place to hear him? Are you walking with him through prayer and Bible study so you'll hear what it is he's trying to tell us and warn us? He's the Lord of history. Are we yielded to his will or are we resisting him in what he wants to accomplish? Are we looking to be used by him to accomplish his will? Are you, and we need to remember he is the Lord of creation. Are we seeing the things that happen as a warning to ourselves to stay right with God. Don't look at the lives of others and say, boy, they really deserve that disaster. Just look at their unrighteousness, but rather look at your own life and say, Lord, is there anything that might bring that judgment on my life? If it was even judgment in the first place. We don't know. But may every situation that we hear about Cause us to return back to God. And let's listen to what he has to say today. Amen. This is just the beginning as we go into Amos. And I, I really don't know where the Lord is going to take this study. Uh, two years ago, the Lord laid on my heart to preach a series on Amos. And I thought, what? <laughs> What's it going to be about? And I... My calendar's preaching calendar filled up, and I didn't use it. When I came back to study to find out the plan for the, this year, and I laid out my calendar and what the Lord led me to preach, he blaringly said, Amos. <laughs> I said, but okay, I wrote it down. But I still don't know what you want me to say. I don't, what is it that you want me to focus on? I don't, still don't know 100%. God's leading me and starting to open the, uh, my eyes to see some things that we need to, to hear. But it's obvious to me that God wants us to do this. And there's something that we need to hear in this book 
that God desperately wants us to hear because he will not leave it alone. I hope you'll be faithful, and I hope that you'll hear, not me, but hear what the Lord is trying to tell us. Amen? As he speaks through his messengers. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance that we have, Lord, as we just begin to open this book and begin to introduce this. We thank you, Lord, that you do speak. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in this world alone. You have not left us to try to figure this thing out on our own, but you have spoken in this world. You have revealed yourself to us. We would have no hope without that. We thank you, Lord, for showing us you and your part, at least a portion of your will. May we yield to that. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of history. You do not let the man or evil in this world thwart your plans, and you are working actively toward the end of a new creation and a time when all man will serve you as king. Lord, I thank you that you're the Lord of creation. You're not just powerful enough to build this world and create this world around us, but you're powerful enough to use that creation, be the Lord over that creation, to use it in our lives to help us, to correct us, and to guide us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be open to what you would have us to hear this time as we study this book. Pray that you speak to us now in Jesus' name. I pray these things. Amen. Let's sing one verse of invitation, and then we're going to go into